Hello, hello, and welcome back to another episode of Office Hours Career Paths for PhDs. This is a curated interview series where we talk to people who were brave enough to take the leap outside of academia, but also those who were brave enough to stay inside of academia. I am excited to just introduce our guest today, Dr. Rolandus Rice. He is the Chief Operating Officer of Tuskegee University, and he earned his PhD in history from Auburn University. So let's bring him to the stage. Dr. Rice. Good afternoon, Dr. Goodman. Thank you so much for having me. It's so great to have you here. Uh, You and I, of course, we met years and years ago, and it has been awesome to just witness your journey a bit from a distance, but also just from a very special place because you do have an awesome story. So I just want to just kind of give you space to just tell us a bit about yourself in terms of your academic background and just kind of how you um, and I, I won't give I'll just go ahead and give the title of was it a book? Yes. The GED to PhD. So tell us about that story. Well, uh, first of all, again, thank you for having me, Dr. Goodman. And you talk about my journey. I'm equally impressed and awe and inspired by what you've been able to do. Um, earning a PhD from Howard University, the Mecca, and are really uh, doing such an amazing job, leaving an indelible imprint on everything that you touch. And, and so me, um, born in Atlanta, Georgia, um, the economic and social hub of the South. They say the city too busy to hate. I wouldn't go that far. Uh, but Grady Hospital made me. So I'll, I'll always sing that song uh, uh, in front of any microphone. Um, but you're right. Uh, growing up in Atlanta, uh, single mother there with my brother. Uh, my mother did the best that she could to keep us out of trouble and managing two boys. You can imagine that it was always uh, an interesting day. Uh, in the Rice apartment, um, but she did her best. So, uh, start school, man, third grade. I was told that I had ADHD um, and placed on medication. the The principal said, "Well, Miss Miss Rice, don't worry. Um, it's okay. This medication and him being in the BD class will give him the license to misbehave." And and how ironic, I'll progress real quick. That same principal uh, came to my graduation from Auburn University and apologized because he remembered that conversation. Um, But so I'm I'm placed on medication in the BD class, riding a little bus. And I always felt that I was different. So in the BD class setting, Dr. Goodman. Now, can you tell us what BD stands for? uh, Behavior disorders. Got it. Okay. Yes. Uh, and I wasn't BD. I was just BAD bad. <laughs> and so um, they had a program that you call mainstream, which is when you would leave the BD classroom to go to the regular class with regular students. And so I knew then that I was different because they're regular, they're mainstream. I must be irregular or not deserving to be in the current with the mainstream. And so I held that psychological underpinning um, through elementary school and and high school. So ninth grade, Columbia High, Decatur, Georgia, um, I started to get behind in my classes. I was skipping school because people were laughing at my clothes and my shoes. I said, oh, school must not be for me. So there were in many classes, Dr. Goodman, my days absent was higher than my grade. I had a one in biology. I had a 32 in driver's ed, a one. And again, I think he was being nice by giving me the one. And again, I did not understand the importance of an education. And so there were some years between 10th and 11th grade that I did well in some classes, but in 2000, I realized that I was really behind when my when my younger brother, Arando, we were in the same ninth grade English class. And I said, oh, it's time for me to go. And so I dropped out. And that was that was a low moment for me. And it really hit me when I was washing dishes at a restaurant on Wesley Chapel in Decatur, Georgia. And my friends from high school were coming in the restaurant and they saw me wearing a garbage bag because I was washing dishes. 
and you wore a garbage bag so your clothes wouldn't get saturated with the soap and the water. And it was like, yo, Ro, you know, uh, what are you about to do? Wash dishes, go to work. Others were saying they earned scholarships at the University of Florida, Georgia, Tuskegee, Howard, Morehouse, Hampton, Spelman. And here I am washing the dish. And so I started working um, a variety of uh, blue collar jobs. Nothing is wrong with the blue collar job. It has honor and merit and value. Um, but I was working in warehouses and washing dishes, changing tires, driving forklifts, uh, pulling orders, whatever I could do to sort of make a living for myself. And then one weekend, and this is a true story. Um, my mother kicked me out of the house. My girlfriend dumped me, who's not my wife, by the way. And uh, my car got repossessed mm. all in one weekend. So Rayford Logan uh, refers to a low point as the nadir, the lowest point. That was the lowest point at that time of my life. And so I started to try to figure something out. So my grandmother loaned me some money to go back and forth on the Metro Atlanta rapid transit system, which is known as MARTA, the MARTA bus. And so I started preparing for the GED. And I went to one class and I said, oh, I, I, I can do this. And so I took the test, passed all of the sections on the first try. But Dr. Goodman, the compelling point to that was on the test scores, my highest score was in social studies. And I had no idea that that was a barometer or a reminder for me that maybe I should pursue history at some point. But at that time, I was just trying to get into school. I wanted to prove to others that, hey, though I dropped out, it didn't stop there because I was still trying to impress that same girl. And so I enrolled in DeVry University, not ever expecting to graduate. I just enrolled so that people could see that I tried. And that for me was my uh, my highest point. I thought I had nothing else to prove to anybody. But then as I'm going through the classes, I'm taking critical thinking and math and English and history and biology. I said, oh, I'm smart for real because I have been told for so long that I was not smart. Mm -hmm. And and there are, are academic terms for that. But I felt like I just did not belong in an intellectual space. And so uh, graduated 3.8. And so I said, you know what? I'm going to go to law school. So I took the LSAT score like a 165. I said, oh, I, I know I can do this. But Alabama State um, really put me on the trajectory to do what I'm doing now. So Dr. Goodman, I applied to the program for the MA in history. And Dr. Autry, she was the first of African-American to earn a PhD in history from Notre Dame. Went to Talladega. And she says, well, Mr. Rice, uh, I don't know you, but you sound like you really want to attend. So I'm going to lobby for you, despite the fact that the graduate school denied your admission. So she goes to the graduate office, gets me admitted and gets me a job on campus, a 20 hour. And that was a big deal then. Yeah. So I had in-state tuition and I was able to live in graduate housing. So I'm saying, oh, man, I'm on my way. Mm -hmm. um, and keep in mind. I had no experience in studying history outside of one world history class. And she taught me the difference between active and passive voice. Mm -hmm. She taught me the difference in how to write and analyze as a historian. And so it was Alabama State that propelled me to go to Auburn. And at the time, I was the second African-American to earn the Ph.D. in the discipline of history but the first person ever with the GED to earn a PhD from Auburn University. And so that was the, the narrative arc, so to speak. And for me, I my ultimate goal was to get a tenure track job, teaching the department for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. I would have been completely content with that because I love the classroom. Uh, it is a sanctuary for me. It is a safe haven for me. Mm -hmm. uh, but I couldn't land a job like some PhDs, depending on your network and who knows you. And so uh, luckily enough, well, not luckily, it was a blessing that when I taught here at Tuskegee, 
um, one of the faculty members here was recruited to be the dean at Talladega. And he says, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to move. I don't want to do it for that salary. But I know this dynamic young brother who I think would be great for the job. You should give him a call. Now, Dr. Goodman, this is as true as it happened. I was fresh out of graduate school. I taught one year. I didn't have any publications, mm -hmm. but they needed someone to teach African-American history because it was a required course. They made they had just made it a required course. And that's one thing I knew I could do. And they said, well, could you just try to the deanship just to see how it goes? I said, oh, I think I can do that. Just try a deanship to see how it goes. Try a deanship. Okay. I, was 30, I was 33 and I was supervising faculty who taught my mentors. Um, so that was daunting. And it was that deanship that has propelled me to this seat at Tuskegee. It allowed me to serve as a provost at one place, dean of a graduate school at another place, and a chief diversity officer at another place. And so I've been able to see the university through different lenses uh, as a student, as an academic administrator, as a student affairs administrator, and as just someone who loves to cultivate young minds to be great. And so there are always so many opportunities. And I learned this from a Dr. William Harris, who was a former president at Alabama State. And he said, Rice, and I was a PhD student. Then he said, Rice, um, don't go looking for jobs. He said, the word will get out. If you do a good job, people will find you. Mm -hmm. And I didn't apply for jobs for a long time. People came looking for me. And I'm not saying that I'm you know, superior in talent or intellect, but I think there is something true to what he said. When, when you do good work, um, people will knock down your door. Uh, or the Bible says your gifts will make room for you. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what has happened for me. Whew. Such a compelling story. Well, a lot to unpack there. I'd love to learn about some of the challenges that you faced along the way. Well, actually, what I first want to do, I want to shout out Alabama State University for being a place that could, one, offer you an intellectual safe space and could nurture you. And I think that speaks to the power of our HBCUs, whereas other institutions will look at what's happening just on paper. Oh, they yes can see you, they see you and they see your potential. Yes. And I think that's powerful. I've heard a number of stories in that same vein, but none quite like yours. So tell me about some of the early challenges you faced as you were transitioning um, into this, this graduate study and what you experienced when it came down to submitting assignments, under like <laughs> reading text, kind of tell me how, how, how was all of that? You know what? And and the memories are still so fresh in my mind. Again, I I had a vast vocabulary because when I was a little boy as a punishment, my mother would make me read the dictionary and the encyclopedia. Mm -hmm. So I, I knew words and I knew how to write, but I would use a, a five dollar word when a 25 cent word would do. Um, and that was my biggest problem. Mm -hmm. But I also I wasn't analytical. I could, you know, as a history major at the graduate level, I mean, we had to read, man, 400 page books and to condense that into a one page review. Mm -hmm. uh, the thesis, what is the historiography saying? How does it talk with other scholars? I mean, that was a challenging uh, uh, assignment for me. Um, my professor, Dorothy Autry. I will spend a page reading a book and one book in particular was the, uh, the Frederick Douglass's autobiography. Fascinating book and his, his, his play with the English language. I mean, I think is, is, is without peer. And I spent two weeks writing that book report and earned a C. Mm. And the paper was marked up. Every single paragraph had red ink. Now hindsight says, that professor cared about me. Um, when I entered graduate school, I did not know what a mulatto was. Mm. All I knew was Abraham Lincoln, Martin Luther King Jr., 
and the Civil War. That's it. Yeah. Basic so, public school history. Yeah. Basic and public mm-hmm. school history at that. Yeah. And and so imagine the, the deficiencies that I had walking into that program. Um, only an HBCU could have nurtured. They didn't see the paper. They saw the potential. Mm-hmm. And that's what a lot of uh, R1 schools don't see. And, and history will tell you. People are very impressive on paper at times and still fail. Mm-hmm. Um, Dr. Goodman, I never took the ACT. I never took the SAT. I, I wouldn't know how I would even fare in a process like that. Mm-hmm. But trying to, again, deal with the rigor of the program and at HBCUs, whether it's a blessing or a curse, they do not want to send their students in the world half-baked. Mm-hmm. So sometimes the work is more rigorous at HBCUs than other places because there's an idea that we have to always be better, greater, stronger, smarter. And sometimes being exceptional is exhausting. And yeah. it was exhausting um, trying to be exceptional because my professors had standards that I know folks earning PhDs at schools with perceived more esteem did not have to do. And let me submit a paper um, as a as an upper level graduate student with one error in the paragraph. See off, see automatic. And there was no flinching about it because in their minds, you don't get second chances as a black man. You must be right and perfect the first and every time. Mm -hmm. So that became ingrained in me. And, And that is somehow translated to me when teaching my own students. Um, but those were the, the primary challenges. Number one, grappling with the rigor of the body of work that I had to master mm-hmm. and doing it at a level that these brilliant professors would, would deem satisfactory. Mm-hmm. Uh, just two years before that, I, you know, I had no idea that I would even be studying um, such a beautiful and rich history. And so, man, thank God for Alabama State University. Yeah. And I think that's something that even in the larger conversation about HBCUs today, everything that trends on social media or the reasons why people say they want to go, oh, they went to a party, they went to a step show, they went to homecoming. But rarely are people having the most important conversations, which is about the intellectual rigor that happens at HBCUs and the standard of excellence that we're often met with. And I think a lot of students, when they're coming in, they're caught off guard because they're thinking, oh, I just came here because I saw, you know, a TikTok video and now they're being held to the standard. And some can they have some challenges adapting to the standards that are set for them. So I think this is an important part of the conversation. Um, now, during your graduate education, you also had a very special moment in your life. And I'd love for you to share more about that, if you will. So, um Several special moments um, during my second semester, spring 2010, um, my daughter Madison was born. Mm-hmm. Madison was the apple of my eye. I remember that the day she was born, um, that morning she grabbed my finger in the daycare, in the little hospital nursery, mm-hmm. and I like melted. And I said, oh, man, I felt seven foot tall. Like I have to this little girl is depending on me to provide and protect for her. Mm-hmm. And and for three or four months, my life was amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then her mother dies without warning. Um, she was 23. And so I found myself having to raise a baby who was four months old while also trying to grieve, while also trying to complete a PhD program, while also working three jobs. I was a TA at Auburn. I was teaching courses here at Tuskegee and working 40 hours a week at Alabama State University with all of my family uh, in Atlanta. Um, And everyone said, Ro, you should send your daughter to Atlanta while you complete your PhD, everybody would understand. Everybody would understand because you, you're just a man. And at the time, I didn't know how to fix a bottle or change a diaper. 
And then um, someone said, Ro, you know, you're tapping out too easy. You, you can do this. And I realized in that moment that God was all I needed because he was all that I had. And, and I know academicians sometimes shy away from this notion of God and a higher power, but only when you have been in the depth of despair, look, you realize who held you when you can hold yourself. Amen. And and because of that, um, Madison is now a thriving, you know, 13 year old. And the ultimate honor for me was for her to be on stage with me in her cap and gown when I'm being hooded at Auburn because the president of Auburn, he he saw her coming to class with me. Mm. He saw her sitting on the front line of Sanford Hall with me while I'm trying to study and prepare a paper. And so to, to have that moment with her um, is truly still one of the highest points of my life. And, and so she knows there is an expectation. Okay, you don't have to earn a PhD in history. Or a PhD in something, and and whether she likes it or not, those are the standards, because um, you know that you've done a good job as a parent if your children can make it here without you. Mm. And so I'm always thinking of ways to ensure that my kids will be okay if I'm not here, and we have to move from giving them everything we never had to teaching them what we were never taught. And I, I stole that from a Facebook meme some years ago. But man, that that is that is the truth. Wow. So you have a child, you experience a devastating loss, and you're working your way through that. With all that's happening around you, what were some ways that you were able to transition into your first role? Like, I, I believe you said it was an administrative role. What were some tools that helped you or did you, were you just kind of thrown into it? I was thrown in the deep end. And I knew the, the chance I was being given at 33, right out of graduate school. Mm -hmm. So I refused to fail. So I was commuting from Atlanta to Talladega every day. Oh, wow. So that was two hours. There were times I would I would arrive at Talladega at at 8:30. Now keep in mind I had to go through downtown Atlanta to get to Talladega every day. So I would leave maybe nine or ten o'clock at night. There would be times I would have to pull over on I-20 because I found myself, you know, swirling on the roads. But I knew what that opportunity would do for me. And so what I did very early. I purchased every book I could on higher ed administration. Um, I reached out to William Harvey, who was a graduate of Talladega. Of course, the longtime esteemed president of Hampton University. Um, surrounded myself with people who I knew were better prepared than I was because they had been doing it for so long. Um, I had to humble myself and admit what I did not know. And when you're supervising faculty who taught your professors, you know, there's not a whole lot you can tell those folks. You have to earn their respect. And I was able to earn that respect by being committed, uh, writing grants, getting them money, getting everything, doing everything I could to show that not that I was worthy, but they were valuable. And if you don't love people, you, you cannot be in higher education. And I truly have a love for people. And Dr. Goodman, I thought that my journey stopped in Talladega. Mm -hmm. I thought that I would be in Talladega for the remainder of my professional career. Because I was like, oh, man, I'm a dean. At, you know, mm -hmm. it still did not hit me that I graduated to that level, no pun intended. But as I realized, you know, I needed to, to really buffer up my bona fides. And, and get an academic book published. And, and so anything that someone could say that I wasn't ready, I've been able to, to prove in every respect that I was. And I had a lot of runway left because I was so new to the higher ed game. And think about it. Right now, the average age of an academic dean is probably 55 or 56 years old. 
that's because they did the traditional route, which is honorable and noble. So you, you start in your 20s or your early 30s as an assistant professor, work up through associate and then full. That's 10 years. So you're 40. Dr. Goodman, I just turned 41 this March and I was a dean twice. Um, and so the lesson in all of this is for me, it was providential positioning. Nothing more, nothing less. Um, I cannot say that because of my own merits, I've been able to walk into those jobs and opportunities. God put me there. He placed me there and he elevated me. And, and I'll never say anything otherwise in any platform or forum because that would be disingenuous. Yeah. And it's also important, too, because you're right. A lot of PhDs, when they graduate, they're pushed into tenure track positions and are at times discouraged from even pursuing administrative roles because of the burden or the stress or all these other things that are kind of attached to it. So what has working in administration done for your outlook on higher education? That's a very good question. It has shown me that experience absolutely does matter, but it has also shown me that uh, applying the Hegelian dialectic is also important. And Hegel said that truth is not found in the thesis or the antithesis, but a synthesis of both sides. And so you you synthesize experience and youthful energy and exuberance. And then you somehow work your way into the middle. Um, I'm very intentional in my hiring decisions to not always look at how long someone was at this place or that place. Or, you know, I, I ask people, for example, do you do you plant a garden? Have you planted flowers? They say, well, rice. Why does it matter if I planted flowers? Um, I say, do you have you made a cake from scratch? They say, well, why does that matter? It shows me that you can take almost nothing and make something. And that type of creative ingenuity is important if HBCUs are going to survive in a world that is volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. So you have to find a way to merge opposing viewpoints and experiences and his administration has taught me that if you have um, a department let's say everybody's from the same neighborhood went to the same high school went to the same college there is no way that they can bring something new to a department that benefits a student who's coming from two thousand miles away because they all think and write and feel the same thing in the same way. And so diversity of genius is so important. Those are my primary lessons that I've been able to learn and I hope to transmit to those who consider themselves my mentees. It's weird for me to say I have mentees um, and, 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 and I'm still learning a lot myself. Now, you are the chief operating officer of the illustrious Tuskegee University. Tell me, what was that moment like when you received the call that you indeed would be assuming this role? Um, utter shock because I was provost and VP of Academic Affairs at Russ College in Holly Springs, Mississippi. And we were preparing for um, to introduce some new academic programs. And the thought of number one, Tuskegee. I mean, if Tuskegee says rice, you know, what are, what are your thoughts about sweeping the grounds? I probably would have considered that, too, because the grounds are so sacred. And to know that I had been giving been given this opportunity um, to really make a difference at a place as storied and known around the world as Tuskegee. When I go through an airport and I'll tell you just about a month ago, I was going to the NCAA championship in Florida. And I had on the Tuskegee shirt. Um, I was a, a woman stopped me and she said, you know, trying to pronounce, you know, Tuskegee. She was from Poland. Oh, wow. Could not speak good English. But she knew about Tuskegee. She's from Poland. Yeah. When I get on the plane, I met someone from uh, Lithuania. 
She saw the hat, trying to pronounce Tuskegee. Knew about Tuskegee. The next day I wore my shirt from Auburn University. No one stopped me and said, you know, oh, that's Auburn. But they knew Tuskegee. So the esteem that this school has justly earned um, since 1881, I knew that I was having a special opportunity. And and you know this, Dr. Goodman, um, being a black PhD in 2023, you have many options. And the challenge is sometimes you have so many, it's difficult to choose which one. But Tuskegee, it was never a second thought for me. Um, when I got the call uh, from the president and she she made the offer, um, I really had to sit down and, and understand that this was the beginning of something new and exciting. And when I come to work every day, I feel the same way I felt when she first made that offer to me. Um, I work in the office of the president at Tuskegee University. Um, and I'm, it's not lost on me the responsibility that comes with that. So I'm very careful, even when I'm not I'm not at work that I represent Tuskegee. Um, I don't go into package stores when I have on Tuskegee gear. I don't curse when I have, and I say I curse at all. <laughs> but I'm, I'm always mindful of the brand and that I'm always representing it in a way that Booker T. Washington and Luther Foster and Benjamin Payton and Robert Moton would find acceptable because they all sleep beneath the soil on this campus. And I know that I'm enjoying the shade from a tree that I didn't plant. So I'm mindful of that. Mm -hmm. That's how I felt when I got the offer, Dr. Now, of course, to kind of make this a full circle moment, when you got the call, you were you had to consult with someone, right? I Your did. partner. Kind of tell me that that bring home the story for me. So you mentioned that you had a girlfriend that broke yes. up with you yes. and your life fell apart. And then now as you're receiving the call to become COO of Tuskegee, kind of tell me what that conversation was like now with your now wife. Yeah. So Dana Rice, who was my high school sweetheart, um, whom I've loved uh, for the balance of my life. Uh, we married in 2012 mm-hmm. and we always knew that our pathway um, would flow through higher education, particularly HBCUs, because that's where our hearts were. Certainly my heart was. Mm-hmm. And so when we got the call at the time, my sister-in-law who advocated for me when Dana dumped me, she said, you, you, you know, you need to pay attention to Roe. There's something special about him. She was diagnosed with breast cancer. Mm. And so thank God she's okay, recuperating well. Um, she lived in Atlanta. And so we wanted to be closer to home. Mm-hmm. And so Mississippi, the drive was five hours. Well, we are now, it's two hours and some change, even, even with bad traffic. And so she was ecstatic to number one, be closer to home. And also know what this opportunity meant for me academically, and professionally. So this is the one job I did not have to sell her on for me to take. The other jobs I had to plead and lobby. And and to her credit, Dr. Goodman, she has moved with me every step of the way with minimal complaints. Now, I know a lot of spouses of executives who refuse to move. And so often, many times, those executives have to stay put and not grow because the spouses will not permit them to move as a family. That is the one thing I've never had to worry about. Um, But now that we're here, she doesn't want to leave. And so I don't plan on leaving. So it it, is worked out uh, just fine. And and again, we married in 2012. Now we have four children. Mm -hmm. And so uh, Marley, Rolandus II and Remington, um, they love Tuskegee. One of their rewards is to come on campus and ride the golf carts with me. Um, so just a fascinating story, man. Now, thinking back to where you were that weekend when just everything fell apart, what advice would you give that young man now? Um, several pieces. Number one, um, rejection prepares us for redirection. Mm-hmm. 
And only when you can be detached from a situation can you truly see it for what it is. Um, Dr. King said, only when it is dark enough can you see the stars. And I was able to see now what those dark nights really meant for me. Uh, the second piece of advice I would give a younger Rolandas is when life presents you with a 15 foot wall, you have to find a 16 foot ladder. No matter how hard life gets and it will get very difficult because it is painful living in America as a black man. There's no way to run away from that, to minimize the importance of that. So much so that I wanted a son, but I did not want a son. Mm. And, and so understanding the dynamics that have permeated the very fabric of this country since its founding, um, we have to always be prepared to pivot. Uh, we get faced with peril and promise every day. And just having the necessary insight to figure out which route to choose it, it, it is a reminder to me that we must always be in a position to make a decision and live with the consequence of it. Because every decision, there's a consequence, there's a reaction. Um, a band director told me who reported to me at one point, he said, Rice, you want to save the world, but doing what's right has a consequence. And, um, and it does. So these are just lessons that I've had to learn along the way. Another piece I would give Dr. Goodman is never leave old friends for new friends. Mm. Um, last piece, I took this from Joe Reed, who's Stephen Reed's father. He said, never let the hungry man carry the lunch. And, and these little sayings um, have remind me every day who to trust, who not to trust, who to stay away from, who to feed, as my mother says, from a long handle spoon. Um, lessons that I've had to learn the hard way, um, but experience is always the most difficult and the best teacher. Yeah. That's also something that's important when you are, once you make up your mind that you have to do something new in your life, part of what has to change along with your mindset are those around you. And so being able to discern who's for you and who could potentially limit you, that's important. Since I also want to go back because you talked about in high school, they were making fun of your clothes, but yeah. word on the streets is that you had a nickname, the Dapper Dean. <laughs> Tell us the, more about the Dapper Dean and how that came about. Yo, I mean, again, diametric opposite experiences. Um, when I assumed the deanship, I wore nice suits and ties every day mm -hmm. because at the time I was 33 I wanted to always show students and give them an example. Mm -hmm. And and at at PWIs, your professors are always laid back. You know, a t-shirt, jeans, dusty tennis shoes. That's just the culture. Mm -hmm. HBCUs, you know, um, your professors. There, there's just a different expectation. Mm -hmm. And so, as the dean, I knew I had to be um, always an example. To students to don't ever dress for the job you have dress for the job that you want or that you expect and so since i never had the resources to know that i know how to tie a necktie till i was 26 wow. and i learned to do it from watching youtube yeah. and so when i learned how to tie tie and dress and i saw the impact that it had on on different people i made it a priority to know that i was representing talladega college and um, one time I was pulled over and the officer it was about one in the morning and, and he said, you know, what did you do? And I said, I'm a history professor. He said, Is, you know, how long have you been teaching? And I said, well, I taught a little bit, but now I'm the dean. And because I was dressed a certain way and this, and this is a rare occurrence. Um, he said, you know, you know, you're free to go, man, just slow down and stop, you know, bobbing and weaving or something he said. And so that does not always save one from an adverse circumstance. Right. But I knew then that me being dressed up, it increased my chances of survival. And 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 I think, you know, this, Dr. Goodman, 
um, a chameleon is ability to change colors is not for beauty, it's for survival. And so I understood that I had to be able to survive. And and the, the name kind of stuck because my students gave it to me. And before long, all, all the students were wearing blazers and neckties when they had my class. They would go to one class, dress jeans and t-shirt, come to my class dressed up and then leave and change clothes and go to another class because I had an expectation. Yeah. So that's how the, the dapper mantra uh, sort of came about, how it was birthed at Talladega. You said something there about not knowing how to tie a necktie until you were 26 and you learned on YouTube. Yep. What are some other social skills or just skills in general that you you had to learn on your own to adapt into the new environments that you've been in? Good question. If I knew I was going to an environment, for example, with airline pilots, mm -hmm. Dr. Goodman, I don't know anything about airplanes other than they get me from one point to another point in a reduced amount of time. Mm -hmm. But I did not want to seem as if I did not know about airplanes. So as a historian, we have long memories and we we have to read things that we like and things that we don't like. Mm -hmm. So I order five or six books on aerodynamics or the birth of the airline industry, consume all that information. So when I'm in a conversation with people who do this for a living, I can communicate in a way that says I belong. If I'm meeting with some medical professionals, I, I will invariably talk about uh, some of the first Greek doctors or talk about how medicine has impacted um, the civil rights movement. I can always find a point to connect. See, in our walls, Dr. Goodman, we have to emphasize protection, connection, and affection. And when you're able to connect with people um, in different audiences, then you can be a rapport in relationships because people automatically distrust because they don't know. But right. when you can connect, they begin to trust, you begin to talk, and you begin to build. And so that has enabled me to walk and come out of rooms that I never thought I would be in and be invited back. Sometimes invited back with a very handsome honorarium. All right and, now. Honorarium. You know, <laughs> and, and so that that preparation beforehand, um, it, it really does help. So that's that's one networking tool that has aided me immeasurably. Yeah. No, that's awesome. And I think for a lot of people, because I know I didn't grow up in an environment where I was exposed to executives or white collar jobs or anything like that. So when I when I made it to Clark Atlantic University, I was just like, I don't I don't know what to do. And I wish no. I would have had that type of guidance earlier. I, I eventually did get it. But to be able to walk into a room, having done enough work that I feel one comfortable, confident, but also well versed in whatever the topic was for the event. That that is important work. I want to also revisit something you mentioned that you published a book. Yes. And I'd love to learn more about what sparked that. And then the follow up would be what was your process for landing the contract? Wow. Very good question. So um, again, from Atlanta. And so every morning during the summers, uh, my mother would take me to the Samuel L. Jones Boys and Girls Club. Well, first, it was Boys Club. Then they incorporated the girls piece. So Boys and Girls Club. And it was in East Atlanta. And going to the Boys Club in East Lake, my mother would point to a house. And she would say, that's where old crazy Jose Williams lives. I was eight years old. I don't know who Jose Williams was, but I knew he was crazy. Mm-hmm. Because my mother said that's where old crazy Jose Williams lived. So I was exposed to that at an early age. And I, I have to suggest that it had to be a connection because when I was at Auburn, I studied the civil rights movement. And I was going to write my dissertation on a man named Joe Reed and the Alabama Democratic Conference. Thank you, sir. That was the uh, chief administrative officer. Um, and so in, in that scenario, my director said, well, well, Rice, this is an amazing topic. It is a beautiful prospectus, but 
you have to choose a different topic because your colleague, Larry McLemore, has written on a similar topic. Wow. The proposal was on his desk. Dr. Goodman, I was crushed. Now, I made it through the language exam. I made it through the qualifying exams to get to that point. And I thought I was at the end. And so at the time, I knew that Alabama State was working on getting an interpretive museum on campus, the Selma to Montgomery March Museum. And I always saw the pictures of John Lewis. But I said, you know, I know about John Lewis, but the guy next to him, that's Jose Williams. Mm -hmm. And so I said, let me see what Jose Williams has done. Read a few pieces and there was only a footnote about him in different books. I said, he, he's had it. If he's on the front line of this picture, he it has to be more to him. Right. Dr. Goodman, his collection was at the Auburn Avenue Research Library in Atlanta, the whole collection. And I said, oh, Jose Williams did this for 50 years. King died in 1968. Jose Williams was still working up until 2000 when he died. Mm -hmm. And so that research showed that Savannah, Georgia was the first city in the Deep South to desegregate before the 1964 Civil Rights Act because of Jose Williams uh, and WW Law and NAACP. And so that became my dissertation. Uh, but what I did not do was write about his whole life. I stopped it in 1968 because if I would have written the whole narrative arc, um, there would not have been much of a distinguishing difference between the dissertation and the book. Mm. And so University of Georgia, four or five years later, wanted to publish the book, but they wanted me to change so much. And I said, I'm not going to minimize this man to these types of changes. And so the University of South Carolina Press, uh, Dr. Aaron Foley, he read the manuscript and said, oh, man, you have something here. So it was about a year and a half, close to two years process. And what clinched it for the press was when John Lewis died, he was eulogized by Barack Obama. In that eulogy, Barack Obama mentions Hosea Williams. Mm. And so it heightened the attention of what, what I was writing about. And so the book, uh, it had to go through uh, a review team. You had English folks, you had social science folks, and then it had to go through um, uh, some subject matter experts and they had to sign off on it. And from that point, they offered a contract and I had a certain amount of time to finish the manuscript, to get it in. And I think it may be in the second printing wow. and it came out last year. Mm -hmm. And so I encourage all aspiring academicians to, though we are excited to get the book published, don't minimize your scholarship to satisfy oppressed. Mm. And, and that is difficult if you are going for tenure. So you have to make some very difficult decisions. Um, but I've been crushed a few times. See, uh, people often see the man on the journey, but do not see the impact of the journey on the man mm. or woman. And so this, this journey is full of disappointments. It's full of setbacks. But as long as I can get up every day and, and and I can still do and perform, you know, there's always a greater opportunity. And so that was the process. And South Carolina was great to me. Mm -hmm. And I like to get the royalty checks. That's pretty nice. Um, but the fact that in my bio, it says the biographer of Jose Williams mm -hmm. and and. You know, that's that's pretty cool and rewarding for me. Someone who folks said um, could even write his name. Now he just wrote an academic manuscript. So yeah. the irony is, is so profound. Yeah. Wow. So with the time that we have left, I would love for you to share just any pieces of advice you have for folks who want to pursue an administrative role within higher ed. Number one, surround yourself with amazing mentors. And even if you don't get a chance to be mentored by your desired um, administrators, you can still study them. You can still watch them. Um, compile as many interviews as possible 
of the people who are in roles that you seek, not at your own institution. Um, and don't just look at a, a, a white institution or a black institution. Your mentors in both, because there are some things that white schools do better than HBCUs. There are some things that HBCUs do better than white institutions. So find find those people who who write the policies. Find those people who have to lead complex units. Um, I would argue that the most difficult job in any university is that of provost, because the provost oversees the faculty. You are the first amongst equals. But there are so many other things that drive into that office, budgets and per, uh, so many different things. Um, talk to people who have failed because you learn from their mistakes. Um, read books. See, uh, I believe it was Winston Churchill who said that the secrets of statecraft are hidden in the pages of history. Same thing, higher education. There are books about universities. There are books about HBCUs. I just finished um, Jelani Cobb's uh, Shelter in the Time of a Storm, a brilliant book on protest movements at HBCUs during the civil rights era. And so I learned or learning how presidents had to grapple with state legislators who funded their schools while trying to manage the rising tide of protest with their students. They had to make difficult choices because the president knew if those students continue to protest that you jeopardize state funding. So it was a very delicate process. So history is so instructive. Um, so reading, interviewing, man, conferences are so important. Okay. Sometimes, you know, conferences are solely designed for academic administrators. If you have the money, pay to go to the conference. They won't turn you down. Go. Sitting on, on those settings that you would not otherwise have entree to. And, and so those are the things that I was able to do that sort of prepared me. Uh, but again, academicians don't like to admit when we don't know something. Mm. It's okay to not always be the smartest person in the room. Right. Um, gravitate to people and learn from them because many times we're willing to teach if folks are willing to listen. Yeah. Wow. Well, thank you so much for joining the Office Hours Career Pass for PhDs interview series podcast, just the whole thing. Um, this has been, you took me to church. We had a history lesson, hey. uh, you took some church hills. So I think this was a very insightful. <laughs> I want to thank you so very much. And then right. I also want to thank our audience for watching. Make sure that you subscribe and share this video with a PhD that you love.